Hey everyone, welcome to episode 94. This is Ryan Williams. So glad you're here this week. Extremely grateful for everyone who came on my book tour with me this summer. I got back to LA recently. I went to Durham, North Carolina, to Washington, D.C., to New York, to San Francisco. Loved meeting the community, building new community members, and talking about people reinventing their careers in the influencer economy, as well as the book, How to Launch, Share, and Thrive in the Digital Age. I spent years writing the book, The Influencer Economy, so it was so gratifying to see everyone on the road. Thank you again. You are lovely people. Hey, everyone. This is Ryan Williams, your host on Stories from the Influencer Economy. So glad you're here. Sereni Rao is my guest for episode 94. He wrote the book recently published, Unmistakable, Why Only is better than best. We talked about how people need to stop trying to beat everyone else and how true success is playing by your own rules, creating work that no one can replicate. In Serini's book, he talks about how you don't need to be the best, you need to be the only. This conversation is a lot about getting through creativity, harnessing your energy, overcoming obstacles in your career and your life vision to be who you want to be. He's a Wall Street Journal best-selling author, the host of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, and someone who is a leader in the influencer economy. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. Well, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. It's good to be here. Super psyched to have you here. And uh, typically ask this as the first question for the show is when you are having dinner, you're grabbing coffee, you're having a beer after work, and you want to have a conversation with someone, you're not pitching them. How do you describe what you're up to? Um, well, I mean, the big thing is I use the internet to make things. That's what I, I usually will open a conversation with. And I use the internet not just to make things, but to connect people, to share ideas, and to tell stories. Uh, and that has taken on a number of different forms. But the primary form that it has taken on is a project uh, that a lot of people know about called The Unmistakable Creative, where I seek out people that I find just fascinating and interesting, and more than anything, people who stand out in a really distinctive way. And so you also have a background in public speaking you planned a, a big event a while back mm-hmm. with your work. You know, one thing I've, I've noticed influ- you know, with influencers, people that have communities is their mission's always the same, but their mediums change. Mm-hmm. And so how are you able to jump around from a podcast to a book? Are they something that feed off each other? Yeah, I, I think that, that that's a great question. Um, you know, first off, like one of the things I think we, we do is we identify with labels. And when we over identify with labels, we limit what's possible for us. So, for example, somebody can say, OK, well, I, I'm a podcaster. And so they think that the only things that are possible are what podcasters do. Um, and to me, that just was never very interesting. I, I always wanted to make sure that, you know, I had access to all forms of media um, and that I, I could create and play in all forms of media because I think that just makes you much more expansive and it, it just gives you an opportunity to do so much more interesting work. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, if I were to describe it one way, the way, what I would say is that the podcast is the hub and all these other things are the spokes of that hub. So everything basically starts there, but it gets spun out from there into all these different things. And, you know, I I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody uh, who has, you know, done a lot of stuff on the Internet um, or built a prolific body of work that is defined by any one thing. 
Uh, you know, like for example, let's let's look at something like Chase Jarvis, right? Chase Jarvis. When you think of Chase, first thing that usually comes to mind is Chase Jarvis as a photographer, but he's so much more, right? He's also the founder of Creative Live. He's you know uh, he's done all this other stuff that goes beyond the medium. And I, I think one of the the lessons I really hope to impart to people in the next year, uh, as this book gets out into the world, is to think beyond the limitations of whatever medium that uh, you are working in, because most of those limitations are perceived; they're not real. Right. Yeah. I've, uh, that's one of the reasons why I initially, you know, wanted to talk to you. Our, our mutual friend, uh, John Corcoran introduced us and mm-hmm. we had a completely different conversation than anything related to your book. And, uh, I wrote my book, the influencer economy. I just published it. And for me, the podcast was a platform to get people in the front door and to talk to influential folks and to cultivate knowledge that then I could share with others. Mm-hmm. And for you, your book, you constantly, you know, are sourcing your podcast and inspiration. And so, if you could explain it, you know, what your, your theory was for the book and how you did, you, did you equally prove out your theory or was it something that happened and evolved as, as you went along? Um, well, for, to answer the, the, the last question, I think it absolutely was something that happened and evolved as you went along. I think it almost always is, right? Because I, I don't think that you can start out knowing exactly where you're going to end up. You know, I've always said straight and narrow paths very rarely lead to interesting destinations. Um, what I never said is that they lead to very predictable destinations. And predictable is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's not necessarily interesting uh, or groundbreaking either. Um, so the, the core sort of thesis behind unmistakable is that when something is unmistakable, it's so distinctive that nobody else could have created it, but you, and it's immediately recognized as something that you did. Um, you know, you look at work that certain people do and you can take one look at it. You can say, okay, well, that person did it. I know it. I can tell just based on the signature. There's certain bands that, you know, when you hear their songs play, uh, you'll instantly know. So for example, when you hear the opening guitar riff to the Guns N' Roses song, Sweet Child of Mine, instantly you're like, okay, this is Sweet Child of Mine. And that's Slash playing the guitar. Um, you know, and for anybody who's too young listening to this, there's something called Spotify. Look it up. Um, <laughs> YouTube. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, when you're back on tour, so people should know it. <laughs> <laughs> well, when you're 38, you know, years old, you, you make, you know, somewhat dated pop culture references. But the, the idea was that in a world that's increasingly noisy, if you can create something unmistakable, you've got one of the greatest competitive advantages because you've learned to create something distinctive. And in a sea of noise, standing out is more critically important than it's ever been at any time in our history. So, you know, as a, as a byproduct of this book, we've looked at it through different lenses. We've looked at it through the lens of entrepreneurs. We've looked at it through the lens of artists. We've looked at it through the lens of people like Rob Bell, who is a pastor, um, and how they each take whatever it is that they're working on and they bring something very distinctive and unique to it and make it very special. Uh, and you know, you can see this across industries, across art forms, across people. And of course, you know, every interview reveals some element of that. Um, the other thing that really drove this thesis was that often what I would see is people who wanted to be like somebody else. Uh, you know, you read the four hour work week and then you have aspirations to become Tim Ferriss or you, you know, show up at, at some coaching program and you copy the, the branding and everything to the letter. I, I've seen people do things like literally copy the design and WordPress theme of some popular blogger because that blogger gets amazing results. And so you keep sort of parroting and mimicking and you see this a lot um, only to, to realize, you know, especially people who do it that, okay, wait a minute, it will never be as successful as the original thing. And, and, you know, part of why I think this is so deeply personal to me is because I started out in the very same way, like seeing something that didn't, you know, that worked, trying to copy it and failing miserably. And so that perspective, I think has, has really influenced a lot of, you know, how I choose guests for the podcast, how we produce the show, um, and so much of what we do, you know, like I, I really try not to look sideways too much. Yeah, I think uh, I totally agree with you. 
that there's something about your own intellectual property or your, your own identity that becomes you. Yeah. And it's like, do you want to be the Guns N' Roses cover band or do you want to be a completely different band? Exactly. And so often we get stuck. And you can cover other people's songs if you're in a band mm-hmm. and play some Sweet Child of Mine as your encore. I mean, that's, you're, it's, it's, that's a great way to go about it. But oftentimes yeah. we replicate our idols and like you end up failing because you're not them. And then you realize what works for them is actually very like often we replicate like the one percent of the one percenters like mm-hmm. the the penultimate people that are the most successful in whatever field we're in yeah. and we can't reach that success and it's almost like when you follow the rules you can and you succeed you can break the rules and oftentimes i see a lot of people you know launching a podcast or building a product that is completely more than just inspired by other folks they look up to but it's mm-hmm. it's, it's so similar that they'll never stand out from the crowd yeah, I mean, it's really more more than nothing more than a pale imitation of, of what already exists, and you know, so much of of what we see right now is exactly that. And what I'm really hoping to do is to put an end to that, and in that process, hopefully, lead to better outcomes for people as well. And so, ultimately, people's creativity. Do you believe there's a a way to harness your creativity to stand out and and assert yourself as a leader in a new category versus just the status quo that we're talking about that you want to eliminate? Um, so I think it can be both. It's not either or in my mind, right? You can, you can stand out in an existing category or you can create a new category. Uh, and I think where that really comes from, you know, is this notion that there's nobody that has your exact genetic makeup, your exact experience. And I, you know, I can't take credit for that. You know, that comes from work that people like Robert Greene have done with mastery uh, you know, and other people have done in this area uh, of looking at just how human beings are made. Like you'd have to really kind of do some digging into social science and, and biology. But the reality is that we are not all exactly the same. And that's for damn good reason. You know, we're not all supposed to replicate each other. That wouldn't be very interesting. Um, so I think really where it comes from is, is, you know, what is it about your life experiences, you as a person, what are the things that if you weren't listening to all these people telling you what to do, you would actually put into your work. Like, how would your work change based on that? Because the problem that we have is that we deny that very thing, which is the essence of what it is that makes any person unmistakable. We leave that out of it, and we leave the soul out of our work in the process, and we're so mechanical about it all. And the problem is that when you're mechanical, you deny intuition and instinct, which is really where a lot of the the beautiful parts of anybody's work come from. And so, yeah, we're actually, we're the same age. We graduated from college the same year. I saw you went to Berkeley and then mm-hmm. you got your business degree from Pepperdine. Yes. And uh, one question I love asking people is, obviously the business degree has helped you become who you are and build your network, but did you feel like you had to reinvent yourself in a way professionally when you started out on this journey? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was a total reinvention, right? Uh, because, I mean, my sort of trajectory was a lot of corporate jobs, most of which I, you know, didn't do well in or got fired from. And so I was, I was starting from zero in a lot of ways. Like I started with nothing and, and I saw that as a very good thing. Cause I, I think that often we, we don't realize it, but rock bottom is, is probably one of the most powerful places to be because you, you know, you've got nothing to lose and, and you've got a completely clean slate. Uh, if you can see it that way, the challenge I think is learning to see it that way and not bringing our future into our, or our past into our future and, and cluttering it. Um, because if you, if you really think about it, the future is completely unwritten and open for invention. So it, it could either be, okay, I've had this really terrible career and I'm going to let the past dictate what this next step is going to be, 
or I'm going to look at it as an opportunity to reinvent. And since I'm reinventing from scratch, I'm going to reinvent it according to my own liking and customize it much more than I, I did the first time around. When you mentioned rock bottom, are you talking about unfulfilled career rock bottom or well, I mean, okay. So like I graduated B school with no job, uh, you know, no hope for the future, like hardly any money, you know, like, I mean, it was not what you would expect You're in debt at that point. Yeah. I mean, it's not what you'd expect after finishing an MBA. Like you have done this thing that supposedly is, you know, designed to carry you into the next level of your career. And it does the exact opposite. Um, you know, and so that to me was rock bottom. That's what I would say. And many people don't realize it, but that's often your greatest opportunity to make a change because, you know, I, I, I Soren Kierkegaard, the, the philosopher, uh, said, and, you know, Eric Wall quoted him in his book, he said, you know, all changes preceded by crisis. Often it's the crisis that becomes the catalyst for our change. Um, it, it isn't until we experience something that forces it. I mean, and I've seen this enough times at this point after so many interviews that, that is usually what it takes. Uh, unfortunately, it's very rare that you know you wake up one day motivated and inspired to make this grand change and you change it. You have to be pushed to a breaking point or pushed to a point where you are like you know in a zone that is far out of your comfort zone. So is uh, that when you started surfing after, that is when I started after school? Surfing. Yeah, that is when I started surfing coincidentally. And maybe it's not such a coincidence that those two things run in parallel, like the journey of surfing and the journey of, of building unmistakable. And you uh, surfed... I live right outside Santa Monica, so you're, I'm holding it down in West L.A., and you, yeah. you surfed the beaches very close to me. Yeah, I did, actually, for an entire summer. Um, uh, Santa Monica Bay Street, right where, you know, if you can, you can see the Ferris wheel from the water, just for anybody who knows the area. And your book is actually broken up in a really smart way, where you, the parallels and the, the actual uh, chapters are, are surfing terms, and you get into the, you know, the surfing mindset. So why did you feel like that was an apt metaphor for what you're talking about? Well, I think the reason it's an apt metaphor is is because it, it parallels so many of the experiences of life and the experiences of building a business, right? Like, what is surfing about? Surfing is about persistence when you first start because it's really hard to learn. It's really hard to stand up. You fall a ton, and you know part of the the thing you learn is okay, fall and get back up, fall and get back up, fall and get back up. That lesson is drilled into your head over and over again because I mean, when you're starting, I mean, you're falling literally every damn time you go for a wave, you know, and you learn to be okay with falling. I think that that's very important when you're doing anything that hasn't been done before. You're trying to build a business or trying to start a career that hasn't been, you know, started before. You're going to fall. It's inevitable. Um, then, you know, the, the next piece, you know, I basically described as the lineup, which is competition. There's always going to be competition. There's always going to be people better than you. There's always going to be people worse than you. But when you start, they're always going to be better than you. And so that means you really have to bring it. You have to show. I, I think that you know, part of what is really interesting about the world that we live in is that because it's easier than it's ever been in history to start, it's more important than it's ever been to stick with something because there are so many people who start every day and so few who stick with it. And so the internet gets littered with the digital graveyards of all the people who've started something but never had the ability to see it through. I mean, I, if, you, if you think about it, like in that sense, you know, the internet is like a combination of ritzy upscale neighborhoods and Detroit, right. basically. Um, with projects that have been abandoned, you know, things that people started and couldn't see all the way through. Um, and and I, I don't think people realize that, okay, by the way, there's, there's you know, commitment involved, which kind of takes us into the idea of the drop, which is the, the next chapter, right? You've got, the, you've got the paddle out, you've got the lineup, you've got the drop. The drop is really one, about one thing. It's can you commit, right? Because when you paddle for a wave, it's this one moment that will determine what the entire ride is going to be like. 
And many people, their commitment is very, it's half-assed or it's, it's not, you know, it's like one foot in, one foot out. And so the result is that the, the, whatever they're working on never quite achieves liftoff or it just kind of putters along. Um, and it's, it's bumpy, uh, which is, is, you know, that, that's a real test. Like how committed are you to this thing that you say that you want to do? Uh, and you know, it, it kind of takes us back into this notion. Yeah. It's easy to start. The real test is whether you can stick with it. When I read, uh, the lineup and the drop, it actually like harkened back to a lot of like what I've done with launching my book. Cause I feel like, you know, podcasting, I believe it's like the average of episodes in iTunes is six, mm-hmm. you know, for people that have created and stopped. But for me, I had the book as my longer term vision and it was two plus years in the making and without the podcast to keep it going, I wouldn't have done the research for the book mm-hmm. and vice versa. I wouldn't have finished, yeah. you know, I wouldn't have done the book because I feel like at the age of, that we're in, we need to have sort of like a larger vision and smaller projects to keep us going because if you don't have that larger idea, then your smaller projects will go away mm-hmm. and vice versa if you don't have, you know, the smaller projects that keep you going, I don't know. I think like, I think a lot of people are are missing a larger vision and mission and they have, that's why it's, it is a graveyard. And that's why we're in like, what would you say like 50% of the internet? It's like Detroit. Yeah. That's, that's a fair assumption. And it's because people sort of, they get, they get lost and use your metaphor. Like they get lost on a wave or they get hit and they Mm -hmm. fall down and they don't get back up. And why do you think it's important for people to keep driving themselves like is it the fulfillment of finishing the project because a lot of times people don't have an end game in mind and do you think that there's a problem with people not thinking longer term and that's why they're stopping so this is a really complicated question because there's no sort of exact right answer to this right and so that that kind of takes us into the the whole issue of of authorities and constantly seeking uh you know validation and approval from figures of authority uh, all of who have made up their authority, which, you know, my, you, I, everybody, we've made up our so-called authority by doing what we've done. Like, I had no authority eight years ago, supposedly now, because I have a book, I'm an authority on a right. subject. Um, but I created that authority out of nothing. So, something to think about uh, while we, you know, while we answer that question. As someone, as someone rejects you, who you think is an authority figure, yeah. and you say, you know what, there's actually 25 other authority figures that are just like you that I can move on to to hopefully collaborate with. Yeah, exactly. So, that's one thing. Um, in terms of the question about you know the end game in mind, uh, I I think that one of the more dangerous things is to have too much focus on the end game. You know, and I, again, like this is something that is a fresh on my mind because I was reading uh, through it this morning. Ryan Holiday talks about this in the Obstacle is the Way. He talks about the, uh, a coach at the University of Alabama who says, you know, focus on the process, not the prize. Uh, so I, I think having this long-term commitment is about saying, okay, you know what, I'm going to commit to this process and I'm going to commit for an extended period of time, even though I may not know what the end is going to be. And that, that's the, that's the problem, right? Some people can't do this without knowing what the end is going to be. They, they feel that if the end is not there, it's not worth the effort, uh, which uh, I couldn't have predicted most of what I've ended up doing, Ryan. There's, there's too much of this that has happened as a byproduct of just sticking with something. Not that I had a, a grand plan. Like I didn't have a plan for Unmistakable Creative. I started a website and I, pu- I published an MP3 file and a, a link to a you know, blog post to go with it. That's it. It wasn't what it is today. So you're, just, you're telling me that you just started and you started yeah. making something. I started and I stuck with it. And that, the it's more. attrition. People go home, they quit podcasting or they stop yeah. writing their, this is what, your fourth book? Uh, this is going to be, let's see, 
well, did two self-published books that kind of were shit, two, two self-published books that were good. So this would be, I would count this as number three, but yeah, I guess you could say four. Right. So you didn't stop at book number one or two and they proved the concept out. No, no. I mean, I've written millions of words too, like hundreds of articles on Medium, hundreds of blog posts. I mean, you know, I've been writing a thousand words a day for probably the better part of the last four or five years. So ultimately, and I do want to get back to the steps in the book, like now that you've come to this place where you have the book and you are all over, you know, the web with your writing and your audio podcasts, mm-hmm. like, can you even say where you're, you project yourself to be even in three years? Well, I mean, I have some idea, right? So this is, you know, another thing that I say in the book is that, you know, what the greatest work of your life will be done by is a compass, not a map. So I have some semblance of what direction I want to head. Do I know exactly what it's going to look like when I get there? No. And I, I'm actually kind of okay with that for the first time in a long time. Um, because I've realized that it could be a lot better than what I have in mind. Um, I think that you have to leave your future open for invention. You know, I think um, one other thing I talked about in the book, Tina Selig, who is a professor at Stanford's D School, she says, you know, often she comes to, uh, she realizes students come to her with their entire lives mapped out. And this is something she said that really struck me. So where's the room for serendipity in that? I think we have to be mindful enough to leave room for serendipity in, in these kinds of things. Yeah, there's a, a guy I talked to named Brad Feld on my podcast. And Brad. And uh, so he, at the end of the podcast, I was like, hey, why did you do this interview? You know, we got connected by a mutual friend that, and Brad had invested in his company. And he said that he keeps 20% of his week for randomness mm-hmm. and just spontaneity. And you can do that when you're a gazillionaire, right? Because he can actually afford to do that and take risks. Sure. But what I learned was I take two meetings a week with people that I may have nothing in common with or may reach out to me through the podcast or we meet at a random event. And sometimes those meetings turn into nothing. Other times they turn into just, you know, friendships. And like that, that element of spontaneity is, you know, is really dead on because if you're a, I feel like if you're a, in the 5% of the income bracket in the U.S., your parents probably have put some sort of pressure on you to program your life, like going to business school, for example, for you. That's, mm-hmm. How do you reprogram yourself to not, you know, fall into the trap that everyone else is in? Yeah, I mean, I, part of it, I think, is a deliberate choice, right, is awareness, of, of the the fact that it's a trap awareness that you want to see something different I, I think is really the starting point um and then you know what do you do with that awareness like how do you change the the people that you surround yourself with how do you change the environments that you're exposed to on a regular basis how do you change the information you consume all this is a choice you know like i can tell you i've read more books um and you know grown more probably in the last eight years than i did in the first 25 years of my life combined yeah there's a derek sivers talks about how you can to say no to everything mm-hmm. and there's there's repercussions you could say no i'm not going to pay my mortgage i'm not going to go to work mm-hmm. and obviously these can have detrimental effects on your life but you do conversely have that power to control and change what you're up to yeah so what do you say to people that feel like they don't have the money or the time you know you've taken the long view eight years you know and you've found success along the way how do people compartmentalize this and get through their their day job or their frustration you know they're in a a marriage where they have a lot of bills to pay and trying to harness that creativity to do something bigger? Um, so, I mean, people who, who basically, I'm mindful of the fact that everybody has, you know, things that they have to do. And, and that's, that's something that I think we've, we've done a disservice uh, by kind, kind of perpetuating the quit your job, change the world narrative. Terrible advice. That, that's, that's something we, we have a big problem with. And so you get people who are dissatisfied, who would otherwise be satisfied. And what I would say is that 
it doesn't have to be all or nothing, right? I think that's one big thing is that right. you can you can have all of you, like you can have a portion of it. So you know, take a, an hour of your day, you know, one focused hour a day. There's an amazing book called Still Writing by Danny Shapiro. She talks about her writing students and how every one of them um, ends up, you know, basically she says the people who can work for one focused hour a day make you know massive strides. So it's not like you need all this stuff that you think you need to do what you want to do. Um, it, it's only a little bit of time and a little bit of effort done consistently is way more valuable than a random Saturday afternoon in which you're inspired for six hours. And how important are those habits to be consistent? Oh, th those are critical. There, there is no question that, you know, the habits that you develop, um, and the ability to be consistent essential to, to being able to do anything of great significance. And how many, so you said, do you, how many hours a week do you spend on your podcast versus writing? So I write for an hour every day. Um, right when I wake up in the morning, I read for an hour every day, right when I wake up in the morning. Um, probably, you know, we do anywhere between two to three interviews that we produce a week. Um, so that's like six hours. There's editing. I don't know the exact number for that. Um, let's just, let's just say that, you know, I'm consistent about what I need to do in order to make the work happen. Um, and you know, it goes in, in, in spurts too. Like, so the other thing I've done is I've, I've set my life up in such a way that I have one week on one week off from interviews because I'm the one who's sending the link to the calendar to schedule. I'm like, Oh, if I'm giving them options, then I should only give them options every other week. Right. You know, so I did that and that, that's been a huge help because then I can use the, uh, every other week to, to focus. You know, I, I wrote about this on Medium recently. I said designing your life starts with designing your days, you know. Um, it's not about making these, you know, gargantuan sweeping changes. It's about small changes, all of which add up. Right, over time. Yes, exactly. Um, okay, cool. Let's get back um, into the steps. I'm fascinated by these. So we talked about paddling out, the lineup and the drop. So the drop is is it similar to like the dip that Seth Godin talks about where you figure uh, out like you got to no, figure I, out like your how badly you want to pursue it and keep going and making it happen. I think the drop is really like the dip. I mean, I think the drop is very different than the dip in that the drop because here's the thing, what comes right after the drop is the moment when you're standing up and your ride begins. So no, I wouldn't say it's like the dip. I think the impact zone is much more like the dip. Okay. Uh, so the drop is really, you know, I, I think this is our our, our test, you know, it, it's the commitment that we um that we're, we're looking for, you know, like we have to have this to say, okay, you know what, I am going to be committed to this for however long it takes right from the start, like, or you're going to make a decision that, you know what, I'm going to give this three years, not, you know, three days or three months or, you know, the short amount of time that most people give up in. Uh, I think the, the interesting thing is I think for anybody who has been um, part of this, you know, has read this book, they, they say the drop is really about transitions in your life. And I, I think that's absolutely true. And the thing is, a transition is really hard to make if you're not committed to that transition. And so people think that they can, like what, half-ass it? And then ultimately... Yeah, like, that, that's really the, the best way to, to think about it is, is that they, they really do think they can half-ass it. And if you half-ass it, well, I mean, half-assed effort equals half-assed results. That's all there is to it. And oftentimes people, and I've done this my, a lot, is you focus on doing something really well and you spend so much time on that that then like I, I used to spend I don't know like five hours editing my podcast to like crystal clear perfection mm -hmm. and then I would not post it on time and it's like wait a second I, I needed to recalibrate can I farm out my podcast to an editor can I really you know hone my process and so people like what do you think about people that don't focus on the right elements that they want to 
be an unmistakable creative. Well, you know, you made a good point. Like, you know, spending five or six hours, like, you know, focusing on something like that, that's, that's truly a waste of time. It's not perfectionism. It's, pro it's procrastination disguised as perfectionism. Right. And so you convince yourself that you're doing all these things and, and you're, you're really more than anything, not putting your work out into the world. There's something to be said for quality, which, you know, quality is one of those things that comes from experience and from doing it a lot. Um, so that's important, but I think that you, you can basically spend your time on a bunch of meaningless activities. I think you have to ask yourself, is this activity leading to the intended outcome? Right. Anything else. So is it going to match up with what you're pursuing in the long run? And yeah, exactly. People and that's why there's Detroit's. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. They don't, people don't match up what they're working on and it becomes, and it, and it lacks meaning because they don't have a reason to keep pursuing it. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, and then for, is there anything else that you want to talk about? Because I, I think the ride is pretty interesting. So the ride really, I think, is, is about mastery, right? Um, we, we're at this point, like I said, where you've reached an inflection point where everybody has the ability to create, but that raises the bar significantly. We are not as tolerant as we once were for mediocrity. We just don't have it in us anymore because so many things are competing for our attention. So like, you know, you, you press play on a podcast. If it's really crappy, you're done. You're checked out like that because you've got a thousand other options and a thousand other channels. Um, you mean, and this isn't just isolated to the individual creator. This is big media at large. I mean, think about Netflix, right? Netflix gives you an endless stream of options. And the upside to that is you have an endless stream of options. The downside is that if something doesn't grab you like that, you know, right off the bat, it's done. Like there's no way that thing is going to survive the Netflix queue. Um, or at least for you. So, you know, I, I, it's, that's the case across TV shows. That's the case across books. So how do we deal with that? We basically become really good at what we do. And, and mastery is, is a, you know, mastery is a 10 year commitment at a minimum, ideally a lifetime commitment if you're serious about what it is that you're pursuing. And so that's what, you know, the, the ride is because I think the ride in surfing is a profound metaphor for this because people spend 40, 50 years surfing and they don't become good enough to become professionals, even though they're amazing, um, as surfers. And so it's about, you know, can you put in this kind of time to, to reach this level of performance with what you're doing? And you quote uh, one of my favorite movies, Euro Dreams of Sushi. And he talks yeah. about dedicating his life to his craft and art of making amazing sushi, which is available on Netflix if you haven't seen this film. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great example of somebody, you know, I mean, what is Jiro doing? How, how long has he been at it now? You know, multiple decades to become the master of something as simple as sushi. And, and, you know, that kind of obsession, that kind of commitment to a craft, we don't see enough of. Uh, we need more of that. And so when you were in the process of writing the book, especially this, this last book, I mean, what type of mastery and skills did you cultivate? Like getting, <laughs> you talked about a great Samuel L. Jackson film about Coach yeah. Carter, yeah. kind of like running suicides and getting your reps in and... So I, I had very rigid systems in place for, for how I wrote, you know, like I would block social media and all distracting websites for like 13 or 14 hours the night before using tools like self-control, um, or Hey Focus, which is another tool. There's a bunch of tools to do this. Rescue time does this. Um, so I did that. That was a big one. Uh, I woke up every morning at the same time. I wrote for like two hours. You know, I, I had it all set up. Um, I made sure that at a minimum I was hitting a thousand words a day on, on a good day. I would push well past that, you know, into two or 3000 words. 
Um, I worked with a writing coach who was really, really tough on me the entire time. Like, you know, when she would give feedback, some of it would be really harsh and some of it was just the truth. And, and so I had to learn how to do that. So, I mean, a lot of the elements of what goes into, you know, mastery, working with a coach, putting in countless hours, um, exposing myself to different inputs, learning, you know, there, there are other things that I did is like, you know, can I rewrite a section without having to revisit it and would it be better after I rewrote it because that would mean I'd have a true grasp of the material. Um, and you know, and, and the other These thing sound is, like suicides. I mean, this doesn't, this yeah, is, this isn't, this, obviously the outcome is something that you, you seek and you will get pleasure eventually, but th- yeah. this is like rigorous training. It, yeah, it really is. I mean, there are days when I'm just like, I hate this. Why is it taking so goddamn long? And why am I nowhere near being done? You know, I'm like, I thought I, cause th- there's a big difference between hammering out a thousand words a day and finishing a book that's 50,000 words. Um, like they're just two different animals. Like you, well, you can apply the process from one to the other, but the outcome is going to be really different. I can write, I could write 50,000 words in one month. No problem. I couldn't write 50,000 words that all made for a coherent narrative in one month. And you talk about, you, you talk about mentorship briefly, uh, just a couple seconds ago. Yeah. And for me, I feel like I don't get one mentor anymore. I just sort of get ad hoc mentors for periods of my life, whether it's a colleague or uh, someone I look up professionally or even having a podcast guest on. Mm-hmm. So what is your thoughts about you know people finding that mentor and how important is it to find people like that? I think mentors play a really critically important role. And it's, it's weird because there's no, there's no proper teaching of how to find a mentor, right? Like you're not taught that a mentor plays an important role in school. There's no class in business school that says, find, you know, career mentorship 101. Um, some people find them in an informal way. Some people find them in a formal way. Um, some seek them out, some hire them. Uh, but I think they play a big role. I I think that we, we don't really realize just how how valuable they can be. Uh, you know, much like yourself, I've had ad hoc mentors, you know, guests on the podcast, but I think there's something very different about working specifically with somebody who takes an interest in you. Right. Um, because that you can make quantum leaps. Yeah, I agree like that i mean podcasts are they're transient like they come and go well they come and go and you know like the advice i'm giving right now and everything you want to talk about this is generalized for whoever might be listening it's not very specific to a specific situation so you know you'll take away a few things from this i know because i i thought why would i need a mentor i get access to the smartest people in the world and i saw the difference between that and having somebody working with me specifically one-on-one and you mentioned you had a writing coach as a mentor yes um, well, I had a writing coach in this process, not as a mentor, but yeah, she was a writing coach. She had edited multiple books for some really high-profile authors. So, and what type of other mentors have you had? Um, I had a, a mentor named Greg who uh, was a former podcast guest. He actually held equity in our company for a while. Um, he's the one who came up with the name Unmistakable Creative. He worked with me on you know kind of you know overseeing the the growth of the brand. Um, he actually helped me plan the event that we did. So that was you know that was a, another really big one as well. Okay, cool. I love that. I mean, I think that there's so much to take from that, you know, because you've you've reached this point in your career where you have to like look behind and say, who helped me get to this level? Mm-hmm. And if you don't have five or 10 people on that list, you know, that you can count on one or two hands, then you probably right. haven't succeeded yet. Yeah, yeah, I, w- I would say that's accurate. I mean, I think it was Zig Ziglar in one of his, his motivational programs said that, you know, that he has a wall of gratitude of all the people who've made a difference in his life. Yeah. And you realize that a lot of people have that same mentality, like Adam Grant's book, Give and Take. I talk about it on the podcast all the time about you know, there is a mentality of you give to people and it's better for you in the long run and it giving may not come back to you from that person you even helped. Mm-hmm. But, but what I've realized is most people that I've spoken with on the podcast have a giving part of their personality. And yeah. even if you don't have the long-term friendship with them or even a relationship, there are ways to keep 
the relationship warm and ultimately people want to help you in the long run. Mm-hmm. It's Absolutely. Like, it's almost like if you have a certain set of curiosity when you're talking to people or when you're connecting or even like building a project, like a, a tech product, you want to have, if people figure that you're cu- curious about it enough, then that's enough to pique their interest, I feel like. Yeah, yeah, without a doubt. Um, cool. Well, let's, uh, let's, is that it for, for that section, the ride? Yeah, yeah, I think that's it. I think that takes us, uh, there's two more sections. Okay, so what do you, uh, let's talk about part five, the impact zone. Yeah, I mean, so the impact zone really, in surfing, it's this idea that you're just getting, you know, beat up uh, on the head by wave after wave after wave, and, and it seems like it's just never going to stop and you're never going to, you know, resurface. Um, and so I, I think this is a fitting metaphor for really dark and difficult chapters of our lives. I mean, one of the things we don't spend nearly enough time talking about is the fact that managing your psychology and, and managing your mental health are a very, very big part of building anything, you know, being an entrepreneur, being a creative. And, um, Yet, you know, we kind of gloss over them, but they're so critically important. They're foundational pieces. And it's it's inevitable that you're going to go through something difficult. What do you mean by foundational pieces? Well, I mean, if you're mentally fucked, you know, um, and you can't keep your head straight and you're just an emotional train wreck, okay. there's no way that you're going to get work done. Right. Um, you know, if you're in a perpetual state of depression, if you're in a perpetual state of anxiety, that's not, a, there is no, that that is not a formula for productive creative output. Or high value creative output. Um, yet, you know, the thing is, you're constantly put in situations that challenge you, that push you to breaking points. Um, you know, and I think the the important thing, more than anything, to realize is our breaking points are often our pathways to greater levels of significance and success. Can you actually share outside of your MBA graduation, like a breaking point you had throughout the creative process with? You're launching your podcast or even any of your books? Yeah, I mean, I you know I talked extensively about uh, this my breaking point in, in uh, the Impact Zone chapter. It was a 2014. You know, by the end of 2014, which had started out as this wildly successful year, uh, you know, we were close to, to we were losing thousands of dollars a month. You know, sponsors hadn't renewed their contracts, partners left. I mean, it was a mess. You know, it was the kind of thing that drove me to the point of being near suicidal. Um, and I, you know, the thing is, that I was very fortunate to have, be surrounded by a community of people who are incredibly supportive. So that was my personal breaking point. Um, you know, but I, what I realized, looking back, was it was an important breaking point as well because it, it caused me to grow. And it doesn't seem like it in the moment, you know. And for anybody going through something difficult, I'm not going to sugarcoat it because that would be bullshit. Um, I think that what we don't realize, you know, one of my mentors said, he said, you know, when you're going through this problem or something you're going through, it's the worst thing in the world because it's happening to you. Right. Uh, and so you, I think it's, it's unfair to just gloss over it and say, get over it or, you know, it'll be better. Of course, it's terrible. Deal with it. But the, the upside, uh, you know, is knowing that often this is the pathway to, to greater levels of significance and meaning and often very, very, very often in your life, if you actually can trace it back and look at it, you can almost always find that something good comes from something bad. Yeah, I have uh, actually, my early 20s, I was like clinically depressed and I was a stand-up comedian. I didn't leave my room, you know, like for some weekends, a lot of nights, I would just go to work and it was, was living in Washington, D.C. And so I've talked on the podcast extensively about that. And I'm curious because, you know, your book is, you know, harnessing and you know, exploring and mastering creativity, like as a creative person, like, how do you, do you think your personality is more prone to depression? Do you feel like that's something that has happened enough in your life that you feel like it's part of you? Or is it, was it more of like a one-off 
moment that life really um, took a I turn. That, so, so, you know, it, it can be a combination of both. I don't think it's either or, right? So, yeah, in a lot of cases, depression, anxiety, all these things, they can be circumstantial. Um, in my situation, I think it had always been there on a very low level, but circum circumstantial situ you know, circumstances pushed it to a breaking point um, to go from like an extreme high to an extreme low, which is, is not normal. Um, that, that's just not something that you experience on a regular basis. So that's, you know, food for thought. Um, I, I think everybody has, like, everybody is capable of it, you know, on some level, but I think it just varies from person to person. You know, some people are hardwired in such a way that they, they take things harder. And I think it's important to be aware of that. Right. And then how did you end up getting through that impact zone and then go to the next but level? So a combination of things, uh, you know, support from friends. Um, and, you know, I think you have to be smart about who those friends are. Choose that circle wisely. Make them small. Um, because at a certain point, it's just not appropriate to go and, you know, spout off to the world about all this. Um, so that's something to think about. A therapy was people another judge one. judge you, first yeah, of all. Yeah. You, you don't want people, you know, there, there are going to be people who won't judge you for it. And those I, are the, I, I like people I thought were my friends saying, you're a pussy. Deal with it. Get on yeah. with your life. You're like, okay, you're so, not my friend. Then I, I also saw a therapist, and I also started taking medication. So all three of those things, right? And ultimately, now you here you are. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Um, that's great. No, I love that kind of story because I feel like a lot of times people hit rock bottom and they rally, but it's not just a simple thing like, hey, I got a dog or I got a new job. Yeah, and it takes a lot of time. So when that year ended, like, how long do you think it took you from beginning to end when you hit the rock bottom to actually, you know, refocus and come back up? To be honest, probably the better part of uh, 15 months. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, like just very recently in the last probably three to four months. And how, how does this book uh, launch affect you? Because you're talking a lot about, you know, your your own life. And it's got to be like I went on a book tour for five cities and it was like such a thrill. Mm -hmm. You're talking to all these, you know, podcasters. Like how does that affect, you know, your, your recalibration and because and, it's, it's a high. So funny you, you say that, right? Because I, I have been very mindful of the fact that, um, yeah, it, it is a high, but I am also incredibly aware of the fact that it's something that doesn't last, um, is that it's a very fleeting high because in about a month, nobody's going to remember any of this um, because there'll be something else. And so I'm, I'm like, I got to write a book. I'm grateful. I'm enjoying it. It's fun. This is not going to determine my happiness. I'm not going to let this be what determines my self-worth because I know that it's going to fluctuate. And that's what we often do in moments like this is we, we attach our, our sense of self, our value, all of it to something entirely external that constantly changes. And as a result, our self-worth and our, our value does as well. So um, I, I think maybe the, one of the greater things is that the highs and lows aren't what they used to be. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, that's how I'm thinking about it right now. Yeah, totally. No, I've, I've, I know exactly what you're talking about with the highs and lows. So, um, let's, that's, thanks for sharing that. I appreciate your honesty. Yeah, no problem. Um, and then, so yeah, let's just, I guess we've gotten through, I mean, this is what I love about the book is just sort of, it's a, a preamble to your, your research and your work. And then you also were like the ultimate case study and Guinea pig. Mm -hmm. And so it's part of your journey and ultimately you have the book and who knows what's next, but you're going to keep doing what you're doing and go back to the podcast and keep writing and, like you're saying, in a month, it's just business as usual. You just happen to have a book with hundreds of Amazon reviews. Yeah, I mean, for me, it was the next day business as usual, right? Like people ask, what did you do on launch day? And I'm like, I wrote a thousand words. That's what I get up and do every day. Yep. Um, and then I went surfing. I, like, I didn't even check the Amazon rankings until the end of the day. Mm -hmm. 
um, because that's just a recipe for madness. Yeah, it's like you're inflating yourself worth like we're talking about based on inflating it. <laughs> just things that like are superficial and they're vanity metrics. Yeah. And unless someone writes you a million dollar check and you're like, oh, wow, like I really, <laughs> my life is now completely different. Exactly. Unfortunately, I mean, it's a grind. And <laughs> even though you wrote the book, you're still going back to work because that's what you do. Yes, exactly. And what you talk about in the book a lot is, so let's uh, get into the part six, the stoke. All right. So I love the word stoke. It means like stoke as in you're, you're awesome. I'm stoked to hang out with you. It means stoking the flame, mm-hmm. right? The fire going. And so what, what, why did you choose that word for this, this part of the book? Um, well, that comes from surfing. And in surfing, you know, the stoke is basically, it's the, 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 the high that you get after you've ridden a wave or after you've caught in a wave, which is funny because we just talked about the, you know, the high. Um, it's this just incredibly rewarding feeling. It's a different kind of high, though, than the one we're talking about because it's not this fleeting thing that doesn't last. You just get this incredible thing of, wow, that is like the greatest feeling in the world. Like when you've ridden a wave, you come off of that wave, you're just like, Wow, that was awesome, especially when you get out of the water, you've had a good session. And at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. That's what you're after constantly is this wonderful feeling. And you know, that doesn't come from just, you know, publishing books. It comes from getting to be in the water on a regular basis, right? Which means creating every day. I think at the at the core, we're we're really designed to make things and build things. And you know, when you get into this habit of making things every day, the work itself starts to become a form of reward, right? Um I, I think the the funny thing is that there's a surf journalist uh, in this movie, Step into Liquid. He said, you know, waves are kind of this, you know, uh, like they're, they're a small part of something else. Like there's a cherry on top of a cake and the cherry is what you're after. And it's not the waves, but what you feel like. It's, it's not the, you know, it's not the number of waves you catch, but the joy, the joy that you get from the ones that you do um, that really keeps you going. And so I think that's really what this is about. In my mind, if you can't find a sense of intrinsic reward in whatever it is that you're doing, it's going to be really hard to sustain it. Right. And so ultimately it's, yeah, I mean th- this whole series of, of progression, it's the surfing metaphor is, it just sort of happened because you did surf, <laughs> but that incredibly it's apt for the process. Yeah, I would say so. Um, and so did, did you know you're going to talk about surfing as a metaphor? Like when you set out to write this? Um, yeah. When we started? Yeah. I mean, we did seven years ago. No. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, the, the dream book that I think I always had from the get-go was to write a book about surfing um, that had always been there. And it showed up in a very – it didn't show up exactly as I thought it would. You know, originally I thought, you know, I want to write a book where I surf the world and, you know, write about life and surfing. But this showed up in a very different way. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we, we knew that the organizing principle was going to be surfing. And so uh, you profile Seth Godin at the end of the book. Yes. One of the last sections. So last but not least, <laughs> right? I mean, he's an amazing, prolific writer and thinker. And he talks about uh, fear and, you know, sort of the resistance of creating stuff, but ultimately criticism. Uh-huh. And so as you've gone along and, you know, you haven't had everyone love what you do because that's just not real reality. Mm-hmm. And so what do you, what's your, your stance on people that, you know, troll others online or they come on strong and they, they call well, people out? Here's the thing, right, is how much energy do you want to put into trolls? So, like, for example, I'm a prolific writer who get, who has a, a sizable following on Medium. Medium has open comments. I almost never read the comments. Right. And I'll tell you why. Because the same energy that I could spend reading one person – and here's the thing. A lot of them are perfectly nice and complimentary. But the one person who says this is shit I know is going to make my day worse, Right. 
And what do I get from that? Nothing. Basically, what happens as a byproduct of that is my energy becomes scattered and my focus becomes scattered and I can no longer concentrate on what it is that I'm trying to get done, which is to create. Right. So I think the, the choice really is, are you a critic or are you a creator? And, and you know, are you going to feed your inner critic or your outer critic or are you going to feed your creative? It's uh, easier to be a critic. Way easier. You know, that's why everyone on Twitter has a strong opinion because yeah. you can dish it out, but actually putting in the time to building out what other people you're ripping on have done, yep. it like it's, takes what you, the progression you talked about in the book. It's, it's an eight-year journey to get there. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so people take shortcuts because they think that they can finish uh, on their own schedule. And what I've always felt like is you just conti- you're continually in a state of relaunch. Mm-hmm. And you're yes. always relaunching. And that's how you have to accept the failure of your struggle. And just because what you did didn't reach the goals you wanted it to doesn't mean you can't relaunch it or reinvent it or keep going on that path and just not accepting that it's the end right there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, well, cool. This is great. I, the book is a fun read. It's easy. Uh, surfing metaphors make it you know something that I think anyone could pick up. I mean, this isn't just a business book, which I, which is why I really appreciated it because oftentimes people write for social media marketing or they write about online and you sort of take in the DNA of the online world in many ways and uh, pragmatically put it together for real life, which mm-hmm. you don't always get in, in books. Yeah. Well, I, I, I really appreciate you saying that. I'm glad to hear that. Um, so cool. So please tell everyone the websites and you know where they can find yeah. you in the book um, and the podcast. So unmistakablecreative.com is where you'll find the podcast, also on iTunes. Um, and then the book is Unmistakable, Why Only is Better Than Best. You can find that on Amazon, obviously. Um, if you like audiobooks, Audible, and uh, Barnes & Noble, if you like to go into a store and buy books. Hey, that was Serini Rao of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast and the recent book, Unmistakable. Big thanks to Serini for coming on the show. want to express my heartfelt gratitude again for everyone who came on the tour this summer. It has been a redefining, reinvigorating moment for my career. I went from L.A. to San Francisco to Washington, D.C., to New York, to Durham, North Carolina. I hit five cities up, including my hometown of Los Angeles. And I loved it. Every city I had friends or family. My parents came to the D.C. event. My mom had such a good time in D.C. that she took the train up to see me in New York. Um, My college buddies were around. My daughters came to two talks, L.A. and D.C. My wife was a part of it. So anyway, it was really exhilarating and fun. And I've actually taken the book to new levels. And it's going to be something about launching your ideas and the influencer economy is always the ethos of this book and getting your idea out there and seen and heard by others and building community and connecting with influencers. But there's also an undervalued element that I realized where the influencer economy is also about career reinvention. And everyone I talked to in the podcast reinvented their careers in some way or another because these jobs that we all do now didn't exist years ago. So... I'm giving a talk in Pasadena later this month, so if you're around L.A., please come to that. On Friday, 9-16, which is September 16th, I'm speaking at Innovate Pasadena about reinventing your career in the influencer economy. Please come to that if you're L.A.-based. I'd love to come to your city to speak at a university, um, at a business school, at a startup accelerator incubator space, at a corporation around reinventing your career in the influencer economy or launching an idea in the influencer economy. They're both inverses, but very similar of one another because we're all reinventing and relaunching ourselves 
as we move along with our career paths. So hit me up, Ryan, at InfluencerEconomy.com. I'm also launching an online course, which is coming soon next month that I'll be telling you a lot more about, which is based on all the Influencer Economy steps, principles, and actions. What's amazing about my tour, and now that I'm back, is that all these concepts and ideas that I've worked so hard on and that you all have been a part of, which I thank you for and with the podcast, it's all coming together and tightly wrapped into a, a course and a talk and a teaching and a handout and a curriculum. And my vision is to launch a larger school. So that's where I'm going with all this. I want to launch an influencer economy school. More details to come. Thank you for all your support along the way. Much love to my daughter, Julia, my new daughter, Libby, and of course, my wonderful wife, Catherine. (laughs) 